1: Welcome to New Books in Law. I'm Jim Vonderheil. This show has two premises. First, that the best way to respond to a book is with conversation. And second, that there's no one better to talk to about a book than its author. Joining us today is Noah Feldman, who vindicates that second premise easily. He might, in fact, be one of the best people to talk to about any book. Noah is the author of Scorpions, a terrific study of FDR's four champions on the Supreme Court. New dealers who became constitutional hermeneuts and invigorated jurisprudence intellectually for their era and ours. Noah says on his first page that each of these justices was, in his own way, a genius. His book shows how such powerful and solitary minds engaged with the structure of the law, with politics, and with each other. The results aren't always pretty. But they're often admirable. At the same time, Noah's book brings forward crucial questions about the law in our own moment, and we'll be sure to get to those as well, because the last premise of this show is that studying the law makes us better citizens. Noah and I are speaking on March 1, 2011, just a week after the ouster of Hosni Mubarak in Egypt, and a few days after the Obama administration's announcement of its view that laws about homosexuality in the U.S., should be subject to strict scrutiny. Our conversation about the 1930s and 40s is also a conversation about the history we're living in.
2: Well, welcome, Noah, to the podcast, New Books in Law. You have written such a one, and we're excited to have you with us. Thanks very much for joining me today.
0: I'm thrilled to be with you, Jeff.
2: Great. Well, the, uh, the book is called Scorpions, and there's much to say about it, but I, we have the benefit of time and I want to invite you to just talk about yourself and what you've done and been so far, and uh, then we'll get to thinking about these justices and uh, the book itself.
0: Sure. My day job is that I teach constitutional law, and almost all of the projects that I've taken up have had something to do with the way that governments structure and legitimate their power. And I've been interested in how different kinds of governments or would-be governments do that in different places in the world. And I've been especially interested in how religion plays into the balance of structuring power and making it legitimate from the standpoint of the citizens. So several of the books that I've written have been about the Muslim world and how constitutions emerging in the Muslim world today try to reconcile democratic structures of government, with their relatively Western origins, with religious tradition, with Islamic religious tradition, and with Islamic law. And I've been interested in how the people who have the job of both imagining and making governments in the Muslim world try to reconcile these different sorts of of things. And in the most recent of the books that I wrote on that topic, which is called the, The Fall and Rise of the Islamic State... I talked especially about the class of legal scholars who in the Muslim world historically played a very important role in balancing the relationship between the executive, who could be a monarch, usually was a monarch, and the public. And that got me thinking about the role of judges as not simply people who decide individual cases, but who play a major social role in the structure of government in the broadest sense, as people who keep the executive honest, but also who try to bring a certain form of legitimacy to the way the government as a whole operates, so that ordinary people feel that their government is not just the government in power, but is the government that's rightfully in power, and that acts justly towards them. And that caused me to tack back towards the U.S. side, towards the domestic side, which I'd written about a little bit in the past in the context of church and state, they got me interested in a very significant, in my view, formative period in American constitutional thought in which judges played a huge role. And that was the period uh, that stretched roughly from the New Deal until 1954 and the famous decision of Brown against the Board of Education, the desegregation case, which essentially heralded the contemporary era that we're still in, in constitutional thought. And I thought it would be interesting to try to do a case study of some actual judges coming up with their own theories of what made government just and legitimate, and then doing it. And I thought it would be even more interesting to do it through the actual stories of real human beings, because judges are human beings, uh, though we tend to forget that. They wear robes and act as though they're priests sometimes, although these justices that I'm writing about really didn't. But I thought that would be a nice sort of way of continuing the kinds of interest that I've had, and that's why I ended up writing... This book called Scorpions, which is about four justices appointed by Franklin Roosevelt, who did play a central role in the shaping of American constitutional thought.
2: Terrific. Let me pause you for just a second, because, again, we've got this terrific luxury, and you said you'd written a little bit about church and state. I want to hear more about that, and then we're going to start to figure out um, the uh, question of interesting ness. The idea that the life stories of the justices is a is a place to start. I think is uh, mm-hmm. a terrifically uh, powerful premise for a book that's readable and also one worth investigating. But let's keep back on uh, what else you've done because you said a little bit about your sure. state uh, is what you've written, but I think you wrote rather more than that. So maybe you can tell us about uh, divided by God and maybe sure. we'll, uh, hear about your other books too before we get deeply into Scorpions, which you've introduced so capably.
0: Sure, I'd be happy to. I wrote a book called Divided by God, America's Church-State Problem and What We Should Do About It, in which I tried to explore the history of church and state relations in the U.S., going clear back to the Founding Fathers and even actually a little bit before them. And I tried to use that history to explain why even today we have such deep disagreements in the United States between secularists on the one side and evangelicals on the other side, about the right relationship between religion and government. And in the story that I told, I tried to focus on the way that the United States has always gotten increasingly diverse from a religious standpoint. At the beginning, we were diverse in that we were many different Protestant denominations. Then there was Catholic immigration and that deepened the diversity. And Jewish immigration further deepened the diversity. And today, Muslim, Buddhist, and Hindu immigration mean that we're on the cusp of yet another era in uh, diversity in religious matters. And I try to suggest that throughout our constitutional history, some people have made the argument to a greater or lesser extent that there should be a total separation of religious beliefs or values from the way the government acts. And others have tried to take the view that, in fact, in a democracy where people vote, people have to vote on the basis of their moral commitments, and for many people, those moral commitments come from religion, and so therefore, it's appropriate in a democracy for religion to play a role. And I try to show that both of these views are attempts to make sense of what we do about diversity, so that each side is sincerely motivated, even though um, the views are not fully compatible. And I suggest that that's one of the reasons for our ongoing conflict about religion, not just that some people believe in God and some people don't, although that might be part of it, but more importantly, that we disagree about what... The job of religion should be in helping us form our public values and speak about our, our public values. So that was divided by God. And that,
2: maps, that maps kind of interestingly into the judicial restraint idea that a judge should let democratic institutions decide. Presumably the non-secularists would say, hey, a religious Congress or a Congress with religious people or any legislature should be allowed to uh, make laws that are religiously inflected.
0: That's absolutely right. And they would see the desire to protect the public space from uh, too much religion as a mechanism of judicial activism. Right. Whereas on the other side, many secularists would say, well, as long as secularists are in the minority, the very job of the judiciary is to protect minorities against majorities. To uh, To use the words of Justice Robert Jackson, who's one of the subjects of my book – that the uh, the very point of the Constitution is to remove some matters from the sphere of democratic decision-making, to take it out of the game of politics. Right. And those are two very different conceptions, as you say, Jim, of the judicial role.
2: And then your wonderful subtitle has a wonderful second clause, what we should do about it. Uh, what do you uh, propose in, in Divided by God as a way forward?
0: In Divided by God, um, which came out in 2005, I proposed that each side, both secularists on the one side and evangelicals on the other side, should be prepared to make some compromises. And my argument was that secularists should not be so worried about rhetoric and language that invokes religion in the public sphere, and that on the evangelical side, evangelicals should not insist on government funding for religious institutions. I have to say that, although right when the book came out, lots of people on both sides said, well, why would I want to make that compromise? I actually think, and I'm glad to have a chance to say this to you, Jim, because you can't always write down uh, versions of I told you so in in articles. Um, So I'll try to say a little bit of I told you so here. I actually think some of that happened on both sides, and I'll let me just say how. Um, When I wrote that book, um, Barack Obama was an unknown. By the time his presidential campaign was in full swing, he was invoking religious rhetoric, he was using religious language. He was uh, speaking in the cadences sometimes of a preacher in ways that were unprecedented in, in a generation for a Democrat or Republican. And for the most part, liberals still voted for him. Secularists still voted for him. They may not have felt fully comfortable with this, but they they went with it. So I think many secularists did were prepared, at least when it was a liberal doing the talking, to uh, to really compromise on this question of keeping religion out of the public sphere. And then on the evangelical side, after the Supreme Court in the mid-2000s decided that it was constitutional for the government to fund various religious programs through vouchers that are generally available, there was a lot of worry that we would see a huge growth in the number of voucher programs for religious schooling in the United States. And that just hasn't happened. Um, around the country, the, the handful of places that have adopted full-on voucher programs and actually successfully maintained them has really been tiny. <clears throat> and we haven't seen a great outpouring of government money going to support religious institutions. I mean, there are some cases on the margins, for sure, but it has not become a major trend, although many people, myself included, were worried that we were going to see a major move in that direction. And I take that to be partly because evangelicals themselves realize that if money funds all religious institutions that will fund not only their religious institutions, but also other institutions they don't much like, they realize that they're going to have a Christian academy, they're likely to have a Muslim school as well. And sometimes that's a compromise they're just not prepared to reach. So I think de facto, we've actually seen some of the compromise that I I hoped for. And I think the general tone in our country of tension around religion is less than it was five or six years ago. We still have partisan divides, but I would rather see us in a partisan divide than in a divide that turns on questions of religion.
2: Terrific. It's a wonderful image of you uh, that I've got in my head of you standing on a slope and saying, look, fellas, this slope isn't slippery. (laughs) These aren't slippery slopes that are going to lead us into these huge problems one way or the other, and uh, these things are manageable uh, by giving a bit. Yeah, I I think think that's that's right. And
0: and what you do when you write a book like this is you don't, I mean, you can't tell yourself, well, I'm going to change the whole debate, but you try. In other words, you say, well, here are reasons that rational people would adopt these views, kind of hope that, other people will hear you, and they'll say things that are similar, and people will have their own views, and that then in the end, at the margins, you can have some incremental effect on changing the way the debate the debate happens.
2: Terrific. Uh, speaking of which, your first book uh, had a particularly timely uh, impetus. I remember talking to you about it uh, at the time and wondering what it had to do with everything, but I was... Uh, not as foresightful as you in understanding that democracy in the Islamic world was going to be a huge topic after 9-11. Just to shift gears rather abruptly, can you tell us about after Jihad? uh, Sure. And the legitimacy issue that you described as an ongoing concern of your writing.
0: Yeah, I'd love to. And this is an issue that's newly, you know, freshly significant again, although it's never really disappeared over the last eight or nine years. In the wake of September 11th, I wrote a book called After Jihad, America and the Struggle for Islamic Democracy, in which I argued that whatever elections were going to happen in the Muslim world, in the majority Muslim world, um, whether they came about as a result of the United States intervening and knocking out a dictator, as we did in Iraq, or whether they arose by some spontaneous local process, as they had not yet at the time, but now have over recent months, that Islamists, that is to say, people who believe that Islam is the answer not only to religion but to politics, were going to do very, very well in elections, but that that was not necessarily the end of the world, as many people fear, because once they got into government, these Islamists were likely, as they were already saying they intended to do, to promote a version of Islam that is compatible with democratic institutions. And. My argument was that we should, as the United States, accept this, embrace it, and recognize it, not fear it. And I would say we have a mixed record on this, but the first thing I would say is that has, in fact, happened. So in Iraq, um, despite the best efforts of the Bush administration, hoping for a secular democracy, what we've had from the very first is an Islamic democracy with a constitution that enshrines Islam as the source of law, and that says that no law can violate the principles of Islam, but that also simultaneously enshrines the principles of democracy and says the law can violate the principles of democracy, and therefore implicitly uh, guarantees the compatibility of Islam and democracy. And we've seen it also in Turkey, where the government, though formally secular, is in fact understood by everybody to be religiously oriented. The United States has had a mixed record. You know, in the case of Iraq, we opposed it, but then ultimately we've worked alongside these Islamic Democrats for the last six years, and... We have supported them fully and they have been our partners. In the case of recent events of the last few months, Egypt in particular, the United States was... Um, the Obama administration was pretty slow, I would say, to embrace democracy, in large part because of our fear that Islamists were going to get elected. And eventually we sort of realized we better get on the right side of the issue. It t- took, I think, shamefully long for that to happen, but it has happened now. And I expect that in a place like Egypt, when there are elections, although the Muslim Brotherhood is being very sophisticated and saying that they don't want to have a majority, they'd rather have only a plurality and be participants in the coalition government for complex and interesting political reasons, they nevertheless will want their distinctive vision of Islamic democracy to be closer to the dominant view. And I think that's what's going to happen in Egypt. I think that's where we're headed, and I suspect it's going to happen, frankly, in one way or another as well in Tunisia, and it could happen in Libya too if Gaddafi falls. Even though these are... um democratic uh, revolutions that we're seeing, that doesn't mean that they are secular revolutions because in the Muslim world, democracy and secularism are not one and the same. And once there are elections, we're going to see Islamic Democrats doing extremely well. And the reason to say that is that in every single, certainly Arabic-speaking country, where there have been free elections since 1990, so for 20 years now, the Islamists have always won a majority of the seats for which they were permitted to run for office. And I expect that trend will continue in the foreseeable future.
2: And one of your arguments about that um, that I drew uh, from another of your books, the uh, one about Iraq has to do with the fact that there is a a paucity of other uh, civic institutions. And even on the neighborhood level, if security is in question or if there's a need for some structure, uh, the uh, religious organizations are the ones that fill the gap when – there's a, a, a gap to be filled. I wonder if you see other candidates in a place like Egypt besides uh, Islamist organizations that can start to create parties where there have been no political uh, structures on the like micro level. Or I do level.
0: think that I do think that secular democrats in Egypt have the capacity to start building political parties, but they're
2: starting from scratch
0: at a very great disadvantage. Yeah. The Islamist organization, the Muslim Brotherhood, has been around for more than 80 years. um, or just about 80 years. It's well known. It's extraordinarily well organized. Its members are well educated. They have a political platform. They've had a platform for years. Um, They're starting very far ahead. And a group of, you know, 20-something bloggers and people like that played a major role in this revolution. There's no question about it. um, Have the benefit of youth and energy and vision but they don't have um, a large consolidated national organization. It's not even clear that the depth of agreement that they have amongst themselves about their vision of the right way to live is very great. Um, They know what they don't like, but it's not clear that they have a consistent view of what they do like. And so both conceptually, organizationally, financially, and in terms of their numbers and their connection to mainstream Egyptian life, all those groups that participated in this democratic revolution are at a huge disadvantage. And so I do expect there will be some political development. I don't think we'll see no secular parties or no effective parties. I mean, in Iraq, similarly, there is now a modestly substantial secular-oriented political party, um, though it's helped by its ethnic identity, which wouldn't help you in Egypt, where, with the exception of the Copts, you pretty much have only a single ethnicity. Um, So, but you're going to have some. I don't want to say there's going to be no secular organization. Um, It's just that... Uh, those democracy activists are unlikely to be able to mount the kind of systematic political organization in the next six months or a year or even five years that would enable them to compete in a serious way with the Brotherhood.
2: Well, this is incredibly exciting on the foreign uh, policy side uh, to see all this stuff happening, and we're going to, I think, start to shift our talk to the constitutional law side. I just don't want to pass over um, these... uh, the interventions you've made in thinking about the Muslim world. Um, So I appreciate your thoughts on Egypt. Um, Let me suggest that we sort of pass over the military question, because Egypt has the military in charge now, and that seems like one source of a certain kind of legitimacy and was the beginnings of the source of a sort of legitimacy the U.S. had in Iraq when it had the monopoly on power on the military side. But I want to make sure we talk about the fall and rise of the Islamic State, which is your book, about the power not of soldiers but of scholars Mm -hmm. Um, and that I think may lead us back towards scorpions and toward the role of intellectuals in, as you say, structuring and and legitimating power, I found the fall and rise of the Islamic State pretty sly in uh, its implicit argument about what constitutional lawyers do everywhere, right? So you're going back to a very different time, a very different place, and talking about these scholars saying kings need scholars, governments need eggheads, in a manner of speaking, mm-hmm. um, and that law professors and, uh, more to the point, judges have a particular role. Um, I wonder if you could talk about that book and whether you really, how conscious you were of the resonance it would have um, in thinking about U.S. institutions and judge craft in the U.S.
0: I definitely was. There was definitely an issue that I had in my mind. I mean, it's a historical book about... Um, how the muslim constitutional structure operated before the modern era and then how contemporary islamists want to restore it a little differently from the way it, it once was but i was conscious that i was talking about as as you say the role that um the scholars play in shaping what a an executive feels he can or cannot do and there is no question that if the executive gets big enough and strong enough he can operate without the scholars it's a story about though executives whose hold on power is not all that strong the way a medieval Muslim ruler um, might have been worried about succession to his son kind of in a way that Hosni Mubarak was worried about succession to his son and it's at those moments of succession moments when your kingdom is about to be invaded or moments when your rival is about to kill you and take the throne or moments when you're trying to pass power to your to your children In those vulnerable moments, it's not enough for a government to have the guns or the swords, if you're talking about the Middle Ages, and the manpower. The government also has to seem to ordinary people to be the legitimate um, expression of how government should operate. And in a democratic state, that means it has to be democratic, and in a religiously oriented state, that means it has to have the validation of the religion. And for that, you need people whose job it is to do two things to declare to the world that the government is legitimate and then to push the government actually to do the things that they believe would confer legitimacy. So it's not, the scholars aren't just cynics who are, um, singing the praises of the government. My my whole argument is that scholars have interests of their own. They have interests as a class of scholars, and generally scholars have commitment to some set of ideals and values. In the Islamic tradition, those are the ideals and values of the Sharia. In the U.S. context, those are the ideals and values of the Constitution. And so the scholars extract a price from the executive in exchange for their promise of legitimation, and that promise is something like to follow the rule of law, Um, to enable the system to operate relatively smoothly and to show the proper respect to the scholars and their position. Um, So there's a self-interested component to it, but I I want to suggest it's kind of a virtuous uh, relationship where the interest in promoting their own position as arbiters of justice makes the scholars insist on a certain amount of justice. Um, And that that I think is parallel in multiple multiple systems. I am trying to make an argument there about a whole range of systems where the rule of law the rule of law operates. I should add, I don't think you have to rely on scholars to do that. You could have a parliament that does that. You have a parliament that speaks on behalf of the people and therefore legitimates the exercise of power by the executive. But in many situations, um, the parliament won't itself be separate enough from the executive to guarantee the balance that you need for an effective government to run. And in some places, like pre democratic Middle Ages, in the Muslim world, you didn't have the parliament to so play that role.
2: And in each case, uh, there is some reference point, right? The Islamic scholars have the and they have their religious authority to draw on. And in the case of our justices, there's the Constitution. Um, one of the things I was struck by in, in Scorpions is the way that uh, one of your key subject men, Felix Frankfurter, gets to the point of... Uh, as you say, being loyal uh, and almost taking as a religion the Constitution, Mm -hmm. um, so that the reference point for the equivalence of those uh, Muslim scholars is uh, this one document. Um, I wonder if you want to start with Frankfurter and and think about him as the uh, – he seems to be the place that a lot of the other elements of the story you tell in Scorpions uh, pivots. He seems to be the the thing they revolve around as uh, the New Deal justice uh, original.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a nice way of thinking about it. And in fact, it was Frankfurter who was closest to my to my heart when I sat down initially to write this book. I have a big old painting of Frankfurter that sits over my desk and kind of peers down at me. Wow. And um, I, I thought about Frankfurter very much, especially in the opening phases of, of the book. As you say, um, Frankfurter believed that the U.S. Constitution was his religion. He had immigrated to the United States at age 12 with his family from Vienna in steerage, which means they couldn't afford a cabin; so they were on the on the top of the ship. Um, he didn't speak a word of English. His family moved to the Lower East Side, uh, where they never had particularly any money. He went to New York City public schools, and then to the City College of New York, which had a combined high school and college program. Again, a public institution. And then he went to Harvard Law School, where, um, a decade after arriving in the United States, he managed to finish first in his class for three years in a row. And that launched him into a world which would have been previously completely inaccessible to a, an immigrant with a, with a somewhat thick accent. He got to meet people like Franklin Roosevelt, who, um, had gone to Harvard College and then Columbia Law School. He got to meet, um, Henry Simpson, uh, who hired him uh, as his assistant when he was U.S. attorney for uh, the Southern District of New York. And then when Simpson went to Washington to be Secretary of War in the Taft administration, Frankfurt went with him. And Frankfurt became introduced to a broad national uh, national world. He then became a law professor and just a person who had a finger in every pie. He, he, sometimes I thought to myself that the guy was literally everywhere. that He was the Zalig of the 20th century of American history. You know, he was at the Versailles Peace Conference after World War One, where he negotiated with Lawrence of Arabia on behalf of the Zionist movement. He was involved in the major labor disputes in the, in the First World War. He gave public speeches urging the United States to recognize Bolshevik Russia. He defended Sacco and Vanzetti, the, uh, the anarchists who belonged to an extended terrorist network. Frankfurt came to believe they were innocent of the crime they were executed for, um, which was murdering a, a paymaster and his bodyguard in Braintree, Massachusetts, for about $9,000 in, uh, in cash. And Frankfurter defended them in, intensively. And through his relationship with Roosevelt, he also became one of the leading theorists of why the New Deal was constitutional, despite the fact that the courts kept striking it down.
2: It's wonderful the way you, you kick off uh, with Frankfurter as with a chapter called In the Club. I mean, that sort of says it all. Uh, that's describing the scene where he met FDR, but Frankfurter is very much in the club and yet very much a liberal. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think the Sacco-Vanzetti uh, episode, which you spent terrific time on, I knew almost nothing about the case, um, was, was extremely helpful uh, in Giving a sense of how you can be within the institution, and then also say something is very wrong here. Uh, this uh, structure of law should be standing more strongly against mob mentality that would convict Sacco and Vanzetti. Um, I was struck by your decision to include so much of the of the case. I then went and read some of Frankfurter's writings about it. But uh, do you want to say more about that? That's I think your second or third chapter is given over.
0: Yeah, I do. I did end up telling the story pretty, pretty thoroughly. And I think the reason I did is that, first of all, it's just an inherently fascinating story that many people have vaguely heard of. I had vaguely heard of it, but as I looked deeply into it, I was kind of amazed by, first of all, the way that it prefigured so many of the issues that we have today, that um, Sack and Vanzetti were members of this broad uh, and pretty powerful group of terrorists italian anarchists called the gallia Nispi, who had spent world war one just outside the united states over the mexican border they wanted didn't want to be drafted and they were in a kind of terrorist training camp which is what we recall today um came back uh after the danger of the draft was gone and began a really a reign of terror in which they bombed a, a dozen sites across the united states at the stroke of midnight and on one night including the home of the attorney general um, in Washington, D.C., um, remarkably enough, blowing out the windows of young Franklin Roosevelt's home where he and Eleanor and their two small children, three small children were living at the time, which happened to be across the street from the home of the attorney general. Um, uh, they also subsequently, a month or two later, bombed Wall Street, a very significant bomb that killed more than 30 people, and um, was just right in front of the sub treasury department or a building, right on, right on Wall Street. And they, they were really, and then there was a huge national response to this. There was a, what was called the Red Scare, first Red Scare, in which the Attorney General, who had been personally attacked, arrested thousands and thousands of uh, mostly immigrants. Some of them sympathizers with socialism or anarchism, but most of them relatively innocent. And that context just seemed so remarkably similar to the post 9/11 context. It sort of set conditions in a way that made me feel that that world was actually quite immediate um, and very very similar to the world in which we we live. And that I thought was just a really inherently interesting thing, and it, it shaped also the backdrop of the world about the people I was writing about because it showed you that in that period, the idea that our government would be basically a capitalist structured government with basically liberal values was not obvious. Not obvious at all. Um, And especially with the Great Depression that came not much longer after that, the idea that capitalism was the right way to run a government was by no means certain. There were two other options. There was the socialist option, which was seemed to be doing just fine in the context of the Soviet Union. The depression did not hit the Soviet Union anywhere near as hard as it hit the West. And then there was national socialism or fascism, which offered an alternative picture of corporate control of businesses and labor. Um, corporate, not in the sense of the corporations doing it, but in the sense of corporatist groups, sort of associations of trade unions and industrialists and Consumers all coordinated and working together to try to make things come together. And in, in Italy, for example, in fascist Italy, this model seemed to be working relatively well in the immediate aftermath of the Depression. So that, all that meant that liberals, people like Felix Frankfurter, were actually not so far to the left. They were in the middle. They wanted to save capitalism by regulating it. And they were unabashed about both. They, they criticized Wall Street enormously strongly uh, much more strongly than we are willing to criticize it today. But by the same token, they also were very open about saying they wanted to preserve the capitalist system, which is not something you hear all the time from uh, from liberal critics of Wall Street nowadays. They wanted to preserve it against the threats of um, fascism on the one hand and communism on the other hand.
2: And you've begun to make this uh, important analogy uh, that I think is going to uh, be where we end up, uh, so I hope so, by talking about uh, the resurgence of the need for this kind of liberalism, which is an uh, economically engaged and systemically engaged liberalism. It's not just about individual rights. To put that maybe in simpler terms to say something about Frankfurter, he started out as a liberal, and then without his views changing much, he sort of became a conservative in the course of your book. The same is roughly true of Justice Black, um, and I think that's really interesting. Maybe it has to do with uh, the fact that the crucial battles were all won for the time. Um, But I wonder if you want to say something about how unuseful these labels tend to be when you look at a span of more than one decade.
0: Yeah, in the case of Frankfurter, he came to believe in the ideal of judicial restraint, uh, which you mentioned earlier, Jim, the idea that the job of the judge is not to impose his own views, but to stand back and allow the legislature to do what it more or less wants. And when he developed this idea first, it was a liberal idea because there was a conservative Supreme Court, a property-protecting Supreme Court that was striking down progressive legislation. Then he went on the Supreme Court and suddenly um, the legislatures continued to be relatively liberal on the whole, but suddenly he had a liberal Supreme Court that could intervene to strike down legislation. And Frankfurter wanted to be consistent. He did not want to simply maintain a pro-progressive view, no matter what the circumstances were. So he refused to join the Supreme Court when it announced a series of relatively liberal judgments. And the other justices said to him, "What kind of a liberal are you? You know, we have five votes. We have the capacity to make liberal judgments. Why aren't you with us?"
2: It came on. And he said,
0: "Well, you know I, I, you know I'm going to leave with the girl that brung me. You know I, I thought that judicial change what we actually believed in. And in a way, that's that can be seen as either heroic on Frankfurter's part he struck stuck the consistency or as hopelessly naive as you know both liberals and conservatives uh, are happy to abandon judicial restraint the moment they have five votes on the Supreme Court so
2: I think that, I know that's trying to you come down but let me yeah. ask you what do you think as starting sitting down to write uh, with Frankfurter at the heart of your uh, you know looking as presiding over your writing process I wonder if your view evolved and you Drifted a little bit more toward finding him naive in his consistency.
0: Yeah, I think it did. I mean, I think I admired him at the beginning and I still admired him at the end, but I saw something tragic about his the ways, as I looked closer and closer at his actual opinions, the ways that he would get he sort of got carried away with this obsession with consistency. And sometimes he was forced to choose between consistency to an abstraction and the actual views of people he admired. And he tended to choose the abstraction rather than the humans. And I think that was probably where he went a little too far. Um, Most prominently in a case called Dennis, um, which was a case involving 11 Communist Party USA officials who were arrested uh, in 1949 on charges that basically amounted to being communists, which, of course, they were. They were the leaders of the Communist Party of the USA. And they were arrested under a federal statute that made it illegal to advocate the violent overthrow of the federal government. Which these guys hadn't even directly done. They were, you know, they had sort of taught and believed in the Communist Manifesto and some works of Lenin. Um, they were nasty people, some of them, by the way. Although not all of them. Some of them were actually kind of inspiring figures who joined the Communist Party for its position on, for example, on racial justice. But others were, you know, pretty nasty people who were in the pay of the we now know in the pay of the KGB and were talent spotters for the KGB in the United States. They were they were a mixed bag. But the bottom line is, the question before the court was whether advocating communism violated, rather was, (laughs) excuse me, was protected under the First Amendment. And Frankfurter should have known that his, he did know that his great hero, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. and his other great hero, Louis Brandeis, both believed in free speech in these situations. Um. But Frankfurter refused to say that, because that would involve judicial activism. So instead, he claimed that Holmes's famous clear and present danger test, where Holmes said that the government can only prohibit speech if, there's a, if a, there's a clear and present danger that it poses to public safety, should not be read as a rule, but just as a sort of loose standard. And therefore, that there was a danger, a sufficient danger of communism, that it, the, the test shouldn't be applied to allow free speech in this case. And that was just crazy. I mean, that was just a terrible interpretation of what Holmes and Brandeis would have said or, or had done. And at that moment, I, I began to think that Frankfurt maybe taking it too far.
2: And there were others uh, who saw it that way also uh, because of the politics. Uh, you can look at the, uh, look backwards and say, well, he went away from his great mentors. But then there was also the Gobitis case in which the justices who followed him looked around and said, wow, the people really hate this decision. <laughs> Politically, this decision is not going over well. Uh, we've said that uh, people can be required to salute the flag following Frankfurter, and uh, now we wish we hadn't. Uh, those That seemed to be a pragmatic view where they just said this is really not seeming like a legitimate decision. Uh, Does that connect for you with the Frankfurter tragedy to go by this decision?
0: Yes, I I think it definitely does. In this um, decision, the Gobitis case you're talking about, it was a case involving Jehovah's Witnesses, children who wouldn't salute the flag and believe that their right to freedom of religion or freedom of speech, one of the two, ought to allow them not to salute the flag and recite the Pledge of Allegiance. And Frankfurter did not sympathize with them. I mean, he personally sympathized with them, but he didn't think they should win constitutionally because he said that this would be judicial activism, Um, The local city council had decided that the rule was you had to flip the flag and that should be respected. And after the case was decided, eight to one against the witnesses, there was um, really an outpouring of violence in the United States across the country against Jehovah's Witnesses. The war was uh, in the offing. France had just fallen. The witnesses were pacifists. They were disliked in a lot of places. I and mean, there was something really approaching pogroms against witnesses in a number of different places, in the kingdom halls where they worshipped were burned. Some people were physically attacked. And so it's not that the Supreme Court's decision, by the way, was unpopular nationally. I mean, Quite there the were people who liked way. it. They viewed it as open season on the witnesses. It was that liberals took a look at this and said, something's terribly wrong here. The Supreme Court should not be the engine of encouraging people in this kind of 2 minutes hate. Um, And so the liberals really backed away from Frankfurter, and then they decided the case just a couple of years later, the Barnett case, in which they reversed their position. Um, And Frankfurter was devastated by this. Um, The opinion which reversed the decision, which is by Robert Jackson, um, who had just come on the Supreme Court at the time, was a very important and moving opinion, saying, if there's any fixed star in our constitutional firmament, it is that nothing shall be orthodox in matters of religion or politics or... Um, or speech. And according to Jackson, the government was forcing these witnesses to adopt an orthodoxy, and that was a violation of the Constitution. Frankfurt didn't see it that way at all, and he was felt deeply betrayed by the other judges, justices, who had sort of voted with him and then flipped. Um, and he, he really believed that judicial restraint had to be stuck to, no matter what the consequences.
2: And your book casts this kind of uh, drama on the court as a real intellectual rivalry, that it really is ideas doing battle um, in conferences and and, in opinions. Um, And that's the moment where you suggest that Frankfurter really slips in his leadership stature. And the court is in the process, you say, of fragmenting, uh, which is what leads to the description for your title um, that I want to talk about in a minute. But I wonder, in general, whether you think that fragmentation was a good thing or a bad thing.
0: I think in the end, it was a good thing. I think that um, it all, you know, things really to a very great extent um, turn on their results. And if you have a group of judges who reach good decisions collectively and all agree, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's perfectly nice. But a certain kind of constitutional greatness comes from trying to come up with the best possible interpretations of the Constitution. And here, disagreement and controversy between judges could actually be a good thing. And I think that's what happened here. I think Frankfurter, on the one hand, Robert Jackson, who had been Attorney General of the United States and Solicitor General, desperately ambitious man who wanted to be Chief Justice of the United States, Um, William O. Douglas, who had been head of the SEC and Potential candidate for the presidency of the United States in 1940 to be vice president in 44. He was very close to being vice president in 48. He was discussed as a possible presidential candidate and was offered the vice presidency by Truman. So a deeply political, deeply ambitious person. And then Hugo Black, who had been a senator from Alabama, um, harbored some presidential aspirations of his own. Very worldly, very political. Th- these men were so ambitious. Their worldviews were so broad, and their desire to win was so great. But they pushed each other to do better and better in expressing their theories of the Constitution. And they developed four distinctive theories. And if you put really smart people together, smart, ambitious people together in a room several times a week, every week, and make them defend their views, they make each other better. And that is what happened here. I mean, they did it, perhaps, probably for the wrong reasons, because they were angry at each other and wanted to win points, but they sharpened each other's arguments over the course of decades. And therefore, they generated theories of constitutional law that are still the dominant theories today. They really set the path for where the theories of constitutional interpretation are uh, unto this very day. And I think that's um, a product and part of their fragmentation at the personal level. They started as allies, and if they just stayed as allies, I don't think they would have achieved greatness in the same way.
2: Those theories that they they hashed, you suggest, are really transpartisan, that they're they're fruitful uh, in a number of ways and have become fruitful for conservatives just as much as for liberals, even though all four men were New Dealers. Is that accurate? That's
0: absolutely right. Um, um, the, you know, As we mentioned earlier, the traditional restraint ideal could be conservative or liberal. Hugo Black came up with the idea of originalism that the Constitution should mean what the Founding Fathers originally intended for it to mean. And for him, that was originally a liberal theory. Um, Though over time, that's come to be seen as a conservative theory. It was originally a liberal theory because Black believed that uh, the court was inventing new constitutional rights to protect big corporations. He believed the corporations had no rights under the Constitution because they weren't persons under the meaning of the 14th Amendment. Um, Over the course of his career, as the Supreme Court invented more and more liberal rights, Black eventually, towards the very end of his career, became cautious and began to look a little bit more conservative. But for most of his career, he was a, he was very strongly a constitutional liberal by virtue of his originalism. Um, Robert Jackson was a pragmatist. He believed that the point of the Constitution was for the court to be enabled to resolve social conflict. And that is sort of small-c conservative. He didn't think that large social conflict was a good thing but it could also be progressive under certain circumstances. You know, it all depended on the, the fact that he believed that pragmatically the court should just figure out what was going to work in a given case. I love and that's the, why... I, I'm sorry. Sorry, go ahead.
2: I love the fact that you connect that uh, with his role at the Nuremberg trials, where, as you point out, his theory about, you know, the Nazi uh, war as itself illegal was pretty shaky, but pragmatically it worked for him, and he was mm-hmm. going to make the case that uh, the the war itself had been so illegal that the things done in his name were just on a weak basis from the start. So,
0: Yeah, exactly right. Too. Exactly right. I mean, we tend to think of Nuremberg as this huge success where the principle of human rights was upheld, but that's not how it looked to observers at the time. And and Jackson and his um, his colleagues, he was the chief prosecutor of these Nazis, really struggled with the fact that there was no clear crime that, the Nazis, that had been specified before that the Nazis had committed. Crimes against humanity was something they were sort of making up as they went along. And specifically, the crime of aggressive war, which was the basis for all of the the prosecutions at Nuremberg, wasn't well established as a matter of international law, wasn't established at all. And Jackson didn't hide from that fact. And in his great opening speech at Nuremberg, he basically admitted pretty explicitly um, that the law didn't get you there. But he said, you know, if that's the case, then so much the worse for the law. And so the law has to be made to work, and it's not worth having law if it can't punish these guys. So it turned out to be an extremely practically minded, extremely pragmatic um, way of proceeding, where you just sort of admit that the law doesn't work that well, and say, well, so what? We're going to make it work anyway. So you know, and today Jackson, though he was a New Dealer, today he's beloved by conservative justices, and Justice Roberts and Justice Alito both said he was their favorite justice when they were nominated for for the court. Um, And then last but not least, William O. Douglas, who didn't move, who was a liberal and stayed liberal, his vision of the Constitution took a while to develop and was a product of a very disordered personal life, among other things, Um, but also of the intellectual viewpoint, according to which um, the law is really the product of what judges want. He was a legal realist, was a skeptic about principles, being able to produce results. But eventually he came up with his own view of what results should be reached, And the results that he cared the most about, that he wanted to uh, reach, were individual freedom and individual liberty. And that was a sort of remarkable um, ideal that no one else had ever said as explicitly as he did. And he followed it. He really followed it over the course of his career. And so if you believe that um, gay rights or reproductive rights, um, right to marry whom you wish, are important rights, you owe a lot to the vision of... Uh, William O. Douglas. If you think that those were all a bridge too far and that the Constitution was, inventing, was being invented in new ways that weren't justified, then you have to blame Douglas as being at the heart of that expansion of constitutional freedoms.
2: He's such an important figure uh, in the larger story that I think you tell, too. I'm glad that we've arrived at him at last. Um, my f- own feeling about it is that you're interested in the sense in which individual rights are now in place or coming properly into place after the Warren Court. A lot of things are established and have been defended, whether it's Roe v. Wade, um, whether it's, uh, as you said, reproductive or, or personal rights of all kinds. And it's quite a milestone in my view that we're at this moment. Uh, two weeks ago or last week, the Obama administration declining to defend the Defense of Marriage Act in the Second Circuit. It seems like it could be the beginning of the last act of those things that Douglas cared about uh, in terms of equality under law for individuals. Um,
0: I think that's true. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think, you know, we're, we haven't gone all the way to the libertarian view that he would probably have embraced, according to which the government can only prohibit something if it actively harms people. I mean, if, if that were, but we're getting close. We're getting closer to that view. We're, we're not there yet, but we're getting closer to that view. I think almost almost every day, and that's very much owed, We owe that very much to Douglas.
2: And yet, I'm not sure he's the, the hero of your book. And I, I wonder if you can. Uh, obviously, it's not a book with a single hero. It's a book about scorpions. But I, I'm interested in how we can be the the heroes of this book. How we can take its lesson on board um, in the last few minutes that we have here. Uh, well I would say that you know present, as well as talking sure,
0: about this, sure. This
2: incredibly important era before the war in court and before Douglas's agenda you know really started to win out um, It seems like there are a lot of issues that you see coming back from that time
0: yeah I, I do think a lot of these issues are coming back and they're coming back in a surprising way um we have a progressive president, and for two years he had a Democratic Congress that he, with which he enacted a series of major legislative initiatives. You know there were all those comparisons between Obama and FDR during his first two years in office. It sort of died down now, but you sort of couldn't open the newspaper without seeing a picture of Obama as FDR. Um, and they enacted financial regulation, financial regulatory reform, uh, very much parallel to the New Deal Congress. And then they enacted a major social policy piece of legislation, the health care plan. Um, we're unlikely to see any major, major piece of legislation of a comparable scale in the next couple of years, but they got those two major things through the legislature. And now they're being attacked in the courts, again, in parallel to the New Deal. And our Supreme Court has four conservative votes, four liberal votes, and one unbreakable vote in the middle, Justice Kennedy, who is quite conservative on some things, federal power sometimes, uh, vis-a-vis the states, he's very conservative on, but quite liberal on other things, for example, uh, gay rights. You might say that Justice Kennedy just loves liberty. He's a he's almost a 19th century libertarian who thinks that liberty matters the most, and he doesn't care if the liberty is the liberty of the individual or the liberty of the corporation. It's about freedom. Um, I don't think Justice Kennedy would embrace that interpretation, but it does seem to match his, his voting record in certain respects. And so what we have now is a tax in the courts on the Financial Regulatory Reform Act, but also on the healthcare bill itself. Um, several district courts have held that the healthcare bill is unconstitutional because it compels people beyond federal capacity to do so to um, either join the healthcare system or pay a, what's essentially a kind of a fine for uh, an exchange. Um, now, legally, I don't think this is a very powerful argument, but practically, what, what's a powerful legal argument is one that can get five votes on the Supreme Court, and we just don't know if this can get five votes. It's not impossible. I think it could get four, and it might even conceivably be able to get five. So there's a very back-to-the-future feeling here. There is a feeling that we would need a constitutional theory to try to explain to us the right way for the case to come out here. But after writing this book, and I hope for people who have read it, I don't think they'd be able to simply say, well, judicial restraint is the answer, because liberals calling for judicial restraint are just calling for it situationally because they like the health care bill. You know, If it were a law that limited rights, they would not like it. They would want to see it struck down. Um, and so that can't really fully, I don't think, be the answer. And I do think that one has to sort of look inside oneself and try to find a constitutional justification that works for you. And I think that's the way to be if you will, a, a hero under the terms of this book. I think all of my characters are heroes insofar as they find a distinctive way of interpreting the Constitution and saying what it means for them and for our country. And Douglas comes out, to me, much better than I thought he would in the book. He, he's a difficult person. By the end of his life, he was a nasty person. His personal life was all over the place. He was politically ambitious in ways that weren't always very impressive. And yet, and it's a big and yet, you know, on a series of the most crucial constitutional issues of the age. He was right when the others were wrong. You know, he said that the Communist Party of the United States was no threat to the government of the United States. The worldwide communism was a threat, but the Communist Party of the United States wasn't a threat. And the communists should be given free speech. And he was clearly right about that. You know, he said that the constitution should be expanded to protect individual liberties. And I think in many ways, in my view, he was right about that too. And so, He's somebody who, you know, Frankfurt is somebody whom I started admiring a lot and ended up being a little skeptical about some of his decisions. And Douglas is someone whom I began not admiring very much. And by the end, I thought, you know, some of his decisions are extremely important and valuable. So there is a kind of heroism that resides there too. Uh, last but not least, I think sincerity matters a lot. You know, Hugo Black is sort of the anti-hero of the book. He joined the Ku Klux Klan as a young man in order to get into the U.S. Senate, completely cynical and I would say evil act. Um, And it worked, he got him into the Senate, and he managed to hide that fact until he was nominated to the Supreme Court, and he was quickly confirmed because he was a senator. And then word came out only later, and he couldn't really be easily removed from the court. And yet, uh, despite the public shame of the revelation of his Klan membership, when the Supreme Court came to decide Brown against Board of Education, the desegregation case, of the four justices who were from the segregated South, he was the only one, the only one who stood up in front of the other justices and said, We absolutely must strike down segregation because it violates the original meaning of the Constitution, even though there will be massive resistance in the South and it will be disastrous and I will be personally hated and excoriated, which he was. And that to me is a moment of tremendous heroism, but it comes out of um, a moment of tremendous shame. And it's the same human being. It's the same guy who joined the Ku Klux Klan, who 20 years later um, is the leading or 25 years later is the leading racial liberal on the Supreme Court. So that shows you that people change, that they have flaws, but they can overcome those flaws, and that we need to have patience in our own lives and wait for the moment that arises where we have a chance to redeem the errors that we've made in the past.
2: That's very well put. The um, instinct I have is to ask you to uh, describe the opposite of that view. What is the view of the court that you're opposed to, or the view of judges that this book is opposing? Because it seems clear that... There are other stories told about the way judges arrive at their ideas and the way that they arrive at their outcomes, um, and that your book takes a stand in focusing on their humanity, their careers, um, and their intellectual struggles as individuals. What's the opposite of that, and do you you think it's generally wrong, or just for these group of scorpions?
0: The opposite view, which I do think is generally wrong, is the view that judges are Sort of like priests that they live in a temple called the Supreme Court, they come out from behind a red curtain wearing their black robes, they look deep inside their wisdom and come up with the true meaning of the constitution now that's that's garbage. Um, they're human beings, they interact with the world, they have training and education, their views develop, they have personal relationships, and their beliefs, ideals, and values grow out of all of those things, and sure, they have when they're good justices, they have deep constitutional ideas, but the ideas will never get you all the way to the conclusion, never. That's not the way ideas actually work in the real world. It's not. They're not like mathematical presuppositions that can be applied deductively to get you certain results. They're always being applied to real cases, to real people, and to real situations, and also to the dynamics of nine smart people, smart and ambitious people interacting with each other. And the other view is a myth, and it's a myth that some people like because they think it pushes the judges to be objective, but I guess I would ask, how could anyone realistically watching the Supreme Court, certainly in our era, but frankly in any era of the last century or century and a half, ever be so foolish as to believe that they were objective? You know, how could they have, you know, they 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 made a president in the case of Bush v. Gore, um, you know, and then subsequently they've, you know, gradually, but then they did order habeas corpus rights in Guantanamo, which I tremendously respect and think was very important. I mean, they're, but they did a lot of these things by five to four votes, political votes. And so, you know, I, I, I have trouble imagining what's so great about a myth that nobody believes. You know, if you showed me a myth, this is something that I've developed on. I guess when I was a student, I was kind of attracted to this idea that there was a kind of noble myth of objectivity, and we all strive for it, even though we know we don't reach it. But now, as I've gotten older, I sort of have the view that a myth is fine if people believe the myth. But if nobody believes the myth, there's something absurd about walking around saying how great the myth is. And I think that's where, that's the myth of Supreme Court objectivity uh is a myth that we would be a lot better off without.
2: Very well put. I'm struck also by the fact that you're not shy about uh, your own agenda, about where we stand now. And I think this book, uh, again, without being in any way uh, 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 philippic is the word that comes to mind, you're not advocating about now, you're telling a story. But in describing judges and describing jurisprudence in the way you are, you're setting the stage and setting the uh, conversation at a level that allows you individually and anyone like-minded to make the case that what we need now is a liberal jurisprudence of a certain kind uh, that restrikes the balance between business power and government power. And the possibility that that's the way forward, um, I think, is an extremely important point that you're making ongoingly. Obviously, you've got your classes to teach, and you've got a lot of different kinds of uh, – Teaching that you're doing and your writing, this book, for me, fits into a conversation about citizenship that I think um, you're making a huge contribution to. So, well, thank yes, you for saying that.
0: Th- thanks for the conversation, Jim. I-, I enjoyed it hugely.
2: Me too. Thanks again, very much. Thanks for for being with us. I hope we did justice to this terrific book. Uh, and I didn't get to lavish my encomium on the title, but it really, uh, yeah. as a, a thing that jumps off the shelf and then keeps your attention, uh, is to be highly recommended. Thanks again, Noah.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Jim.